Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce more than 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP and Community Trust Bank, the sponsor of this event with Andrew Seeley. This program was co-sponsored with the American Jewish Committee. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, thank you. Good afternoon. Buenas tardes. ¿Cómo están ustedes? También. Muy bien. They told me this was going to be in Spanish. Is that correct? No. <laughs> it's a real pleasure to be here, uh, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. It's great to be here with the American Jewish Committee and also with the Dallas-Fort Worth World Affairs Council, thanks to Mel Cusin and, and to Jim Falk. And we had the pleasure of working with the Dallas-Fort Worth World Affairs Council about three or four years ago on a program, and so it's, it's great to be back. Among you, and thank everyone and, and the staff and the team of both organizations. Um, this is a particularly timely discussion. Um, I don't think that... Uh, that Mel and Jim knew how timely it would be when they planned this a year ago. So this is, they get great credit for foresight on this. Um, Mexico has certainly been in the news for, for more than a year, but, but this past few weeks, it, it's been the, the news for, for good and ill, I would say for, for a lot of violence that we've seen, which we'll talk about in a minute, but also for the visit of, of a good part of the U.S. cabinet to Mexico yesterday, Secretary Clinton, um, Gates and Napolitano and, and very senior officials, deputy secretaries, joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and others who were down there yesterday working on issues of cooperation and how both countries can get their efforts together in a coordinated way to deal with some of this. We will come back to all of this in a moment here. Um, before that, let me say I'm particularly glad to be in Dallas. Um, it is a city that I use often as an example when I talk about uh, the border being more than just a line between the two countries. Dallas is in many ways a border city, as is Monterrey, Mexico. Not because it's close to the border, but because there's a deep connection to Mexico. And there's a deep connection. Monterrey, in the same way, is actually not at the physical border in any way, but a deep connection to the United States and certainly a connection between both cities. I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the co-chair of our advisory board at the Woodrow Wilson Center's Mexico Institute is from Dallas, Roger Wallace. His wife, Mary, I believe, is with us. Here, Mary, good to have you here. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Dallas Morning News does some of the best news coverage of... Uh, Mexico of any newspaper, if not the best news coverage of any newspaper in the United States. Um, thanks in part to, to a great correspondent in Mexico, Fredo Corchado, but also great commitments from the editors, and glad to have Tim Connolly here from the Dallas Morning News to, to Mexico. I mean, those of us in Washington turn to the Dallas Morning News to figure out what's going on on the other side of the border. Um, so I suspect I'm not telling this group anything new when I say that Mexico is probably the country in the world that will most affect daily life in the United States over the coming years. Um, it is not a country in existential crisis, and we'll come back to this a little bit. It's not a country that's about to fall apart. We don't look at Mexico for the same reasons that we do Afghanistan, for example, where, where there really is a question of can you create a state where there hasn't been one. Um, it's also not a global power in the way that India and China are. It's a large country. Mexico is the 13th largest economy in the world, 103, 104 million people. It's a large country. It pulls its weight. But it's a country that's also been somewhat skeptical about its engagement in the world. It is not a country that jumps into international politics very readily. Rather, our relationship, in, in the way that China and India do, I mean, China and India and even Brazil are certainly playing to become major global powers. I mean, they're looking at how they can have influence in the global system. Mexico isn't really there. They may be a little bit of regional influence, but certainly not global. 
But Mexico's impact in the United States is largely because it's next door and because its economy and society are deeply intertwined with our own. Its opportunities and its problems are shared with us in many ways, and we'll go into a few of those. Mexico is certainly the second destination for U.S. exports. Almost a third of U.S. exports go to Mexico and Canada. Um, it is, for Texas, by far and away the most important trading partner. Of course, Texas has the largest trade with Mexico of any state. But surprisingly, if you look at other states like Nebraska and Indiana and Iowa and Michigan, you find out they have very deep trading relationships with Mexico. Mexico is ultimately important for people's daily life in terms of their economic well-being, in terms of jobs in this country. Um, increasingly, many industries also have joint production processes between the two countries. If anyone has driven a car today, almost certainly some parts of that car came from Mexico, and almost certainly some parts came from Canada as well. The automobile industry is, is deeply integrated among the three countries. Um, if anyone has a Blackberry, um, good chance it was made in Guadalajara. Most Blackberries are made in production facility in Guadalajara. And we're also increasingly seeing Mexican companies investing in the United States. If anyone has had an Entenmann cookie recently or had Thomas English muffins for breakfast, um, they drank some Borden milk, or maybe they decided to, to have some clean living and, and ate Weight Watchers yogurt instead of the, the uh, Entenmann's cookies, these are all owned by Mexican companies. Now, these are originally companies created in the United States, but they are all now, their parent company is Mexican. We don't really know that here, but that, that is true. If anyone read the New York Times recently, went to New York Times online, um, a, a major, the, the major minority investor is also Mexican. Um, it is a country, the inverse is certainly true, U U.S. businesses have heavy investments in Mexico, much more so than the other way, but increasingly we're seeing the inverse, where Mexican companies are beginning to come of their own and actually look at investments in their country next door as we have with Mexico. Um, the, over the past 20 years, we've seen the two economies grow increasingly tied together. Um, when Mexico's economy expands, it helps us. It helps our exports, helps our economy. When Mexico's economy uh, contracts, it also harms us significantly. It is, after all, a country, a middle-income country, about $10,000 per year average income, um, and it is right next door. Um, it is three times the income of China, six times the income, average income of India. Significant middle-income country not clearly at the level of Canada, which is much more similar to the United States in terms of the economy, but also not a country that, has, that is insignificant in terms of its impact on the United States. And when the Mexican economy contracts as it did last year at a rate of 7%, has a huge impact on the United States. We're in the middle of our own crisis, but the fact that our major, one of our major consumer countries, our second major consumer country is contracting, also further hurts the, uh, our economy. Um, for many, uh, though we've seen incredible expansion in terms of Mexican businesses, in terms of the Mexican economy and the development of the Mexican middle class, something I was talking with some colleagues about earlier, um, we all, half of Mexico remains poor, and that's something we should be, be very aware of, and we'll come back to that when we talk about drug trafficking. Um, this is significant. Extreme poverty has gone down quite a bit over the past few years, but poverty in general, the access to have you know, more, be able to plan your life. Extreme poverty, when we talk about not having sufficient to, to have even a basic diet, that's gone down, fortunately. But basic poverty, the kind of poverty where people don't have access to really plan their lives, to have some security where their next meal is coming from down the road in two months, in five months, um, have some ass basic assets, continues to be very um, significant in Mexico and, and largely stable. And for many of the poor in Mexico, the clearest option has been migration. This has been almost one in 10 Mexicans now lives in the United States. This is an alternative to slow job growth in Mexico for many people. Um, this migration has created both opportunities and strains in our relationship. For Mexico, migration has helped provide a safety valve for the poor. And remittances um, are certainly a very important source of income for many communities. And they've been a source of development for some communities. But for Mexico, migration has also meant losing a lot of its most entrepreneurial citizens. 
And this is something that I think people are starting to reflect on in Mexico. It's also a problem for Mexico as much as it's a gain. And their losses often are a gain. Um, as immigrants in this country contribute new energy to the American economy and to civic life, um, we begin to gain from the entrepreneurial spirit of people who come here. And as an avid football fan, particularly an NFL fan, I can't help pointing out, I mean, one of, one of my, my favorite realizations, actually, over, was realizing that four of the, the starting quarterbacks in the NFL in this past decade were of Mexican origin. They're either children or grandchildren of Mexican immigrants. Um, Mark Sanchez, Jeff Garcia, J.P. Lossman, and of course, Tony Romo, right. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Um, this is significant. Now, it, why does this matter? I, I think it tells you that in many ways, it, it tells you how me you know, football is the most American of sports, and with apologies to people who, who are baseball fanatics, but in many ways, football is the most American of sports, and the quarterback position is, is the key position for a football team. The fact that you see Mexican-Americans moving into that role in such a significant way, and it's not something that's even been a topic of debate for the most part, I think tells you how much that Mexican immigration is the latest wave of immigration that's transforming American society, often in very quiet, silent ways. And in the same way it's transforming the NFL, it's transforming neighborhoods, communities, teacher-parent associations, churches, all of the different civic spaces in our life. Now that said, th there are also some real concerns about immigration in this country. Um, the fact that half of the people coming from Mexico today come without legal documents means that it's very likely that they will not have the same opportunities that other groups of immigrants did before. This is a contentious issue. Since we're talking about another contentious issue today, I don't want to get too deeply into this. But just to point out, it is one of the issues that continues to link us together very closely. Let's get to the third way we are linked. Our economies are unfortunately linked in other less savory and far more deadly ways as well. And this is the subject we will go into greater depth. The U.S. is the world's largest consumer of illegal narcotics. Um, it's a 60 to $80 billion industry a year, according to the U.S. government. Um, and we happen to be next to a country, Mexico, which is a developing country and a recent democracy with very re weak law enforcement, weak judicial institutions. And this has proved to be a recipe for disaster for both of us and particularly for Mexico. Mexican drug trafficking organizations, which were once small-time operations, moving marijuana across the border largely, have grown into multi-billion dollar industries that now control most of the cocaine trade, much of the, well, most of the heroin trade as well, and much of the methamphetamine trade into the United States. And three things changed to make this happen. Because this wasn't true. If we go back 15 years, Mexican drug trafficking has existed for decades. I mean, this is nothing new. But these were smaller organizations, um, much more localized, much more changeable over time. They were not the multi-billion dollar businesses that we're seeing today. And so three things changed. I mean, first we saw a weakening of the Colombian drug trafficking organizations, very significant, largely because the Colombian government went after them, in part because the U.S. government uh, tried to close down some of the corridors that they were using through the Caribbean. Mexico became a good alternate route to traffic drugs. Um, and increasingly, the Mexican organizations learned how to take over the business as the Colombian counterparts were weakened. They originally were transportation organizations for cocaine. The Mexican drug trafficking organizations were sort of secondary in the business. As the Colombian organizations were weakened, they managed to take over larger parts of the business itself and eventually became the central players. And the Colombians still control a lot of the production processes, but it, the drugs largely get picked up, cocaine largely gets picked up by the Mexican organizations, tra transited through Central America quite often into Mexico and then into the United States, and increasingly they control most of the transit into the United States. The Colombian organizations maintain some of them as well, but the, the Mexicans are very far and away dominant now in, in, the in the transportation into the United States. Secondly, you know, democratization of federal federalism in Mexico is a wonderful thing. Mexico has gone through a dramatic democratic transformation. It was for 71 years ruled by a single party that controlled almost every office in the land. 
Um, it was a functional system. We won't get into the history of this. Most of you know it. Um, it was a functional system. In many ways, it helped Mexico avoid some of the, the catastrophes, the military dictatorships, the uh, instability that other countries went through in the region. But it clearly was not a democratic system. And Mexico, thankfully, went through a democratic transformation in the 1980s and the 1990s up until 2000, when I think we can comfortably say it became a real competitive democratic system. And with that came federalism. Mexico's always been a federal state like the United States, modeled its constitution in that part on the United States, in fact. But, but increasingly, uh, but never really had practiced federalism. And with democracy came the demand that states and municipalities have greater autonomy. This is probably a good thing. I mean, this is probably in terms of, of what we want for, for a democracy a good thing. At the same time, it has broken down some of the mechanisms of control that existed before that allowed drug trafficking organizations to, to in, in some ways, um, inflict min less damage on society than they did before. The, the Mexican state was very involved in regulating how much they could transit drugs. Some would say it was a, a pact of corruption, that, that people benefited from it. Others would say it was a pact simply of control to try and prevent violence from happening. But there was a degree of control. That clearly is broken down. There is neither a desire in a democratic Mexico to control drug trafficking, um, nor the ability to do so. Um, and, and finally, and this is, is quite significant, and we'll talk more about this, the Mexican government has become increasingly aggressive at pursuing the trafficking organizations themselves. And so we've seen numerous arrests of traffickers over the past decade as the government has decided that they pose a national security threat. And this is part of democracy as well. I mean, intolerance of, of, public, of public insecurity, citizens demanding that their communities be safe, and the Mexican government increasingly responding, going after the criminal organizations. And you've also seen an increase in U.S. enforcement at the border. What this done is essentially uh, increase the value of controlling pieces of territory that are corridors where drug trafficking takes place. The border is clearly the, 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 the most important real estate for drug trafficking organizations. Being able to get drugs across the border is the most expensive part of the business, and that, that cost has gone up. So controlling that is very important, having routes you can get drugs across the border. But also we're seeing in ports, cities like Acapulco, where there's a great deal of violence recently, um, port of Michoacan, which has the largest port in Mexico, there's been a great deal of violence recently, and some major highways as well. These are the places where we're seeing a lot of violence happening because they're places that the traffickers fight over. If you can control that and not another group, then you have a premium on being able to get, you, you can get your goods um, up to your market much more easily. Um, one in unintended consequence of these changes, of course, has been increasing violence. And we saw 6,500 people or more um, killed in drug trafficking violence last year. It's hard to know an exact figure. No one really officially keeps the statistics, but according to, to colleagues in journalism that follow this, that seems to be roughly the number. Um, it, it is Mexican murder rates are actually not high, which is actually worth pointing out. In the murder rate in Mexico is actually it's a little higher than in the United States, but, it, but it's closer to the U.S. rate than it is to the rate in Brazil or El Salvador or Venezuela, which have much higher murder rates. So it's not that Mexico is a dangerous place to walk down the street, but it is increasing what we are seeing is very brutal forms of killings, usually among drug traffickers, but increasingly also affecting civilians, family members of people involved in the business, and of course law enforcement personnel. Um, and there are some cities like Ciudad Juarez, um, right across the border from El Paso, Texas, where the violence is particularly extreme, where we saw over 2,000 killings last year related to drug trafficking, and where it really is a, a crisis situation. I mean, that is a level of violence perhaps not seen anywhere else in an urban area in the world. Um, it, it's quite significant. We saw recently the killing of 15 teenagers and one parent um, just over a month ago. We saw the killing of three people associated with the U.S. consulate only a week ago or a week and a half ago there. So this certainly a situation of incredible stress. Um, 
most cities and towns in Mexico are quite peaceful. I know Mary comes and goes from Mexico, as do I, and several people here, I'm sure, do. You know, if you go most places in Mexico, things are quiet. It's not any more dangerous than going to most places in the United States. But you're seeing fights around areas that have major, that are the major trafficking corridors. And increasingly what we're seeing going on right now in Mexico is a realignment of the drug trafficking organizations. Groups that were allies before that shared corridors are increasingly breaking their alliances and going out on their own. The Sierra Juarez, part of the violence that you're seeing there, is two cartels, the Juarez cartel, which is sort of the hometown cartel, and the Sinaloa cartel, which is the largest in the country, shared for a long time passage through that area. For whatever reason, their alliance broke down a couple of years ago. So they're fighting very hard to see who controls those routes that they once shared. We're now seeing in the past three weeks in Reynosa, Monterrey, um, the northeast of Mexico, two groups, the Gulf Cartel, had, had, high, well, had really created the CETAS, an enforcement arm, many years ago, former military and police officers primarily, to be their enforcers. Very effective group, terrible group, but I mean, known for being, um, I guess if you're in the business, to being effective doing what they do. Um, that alliance has broken down, and it's turned increasingly violent. You're seeing a city like Monterrey, which traditionally has been a fairly peaceful place. It's, it's had its ups and downs in the past couple of years, but it's a beautiful city. I'm sure many people have been there. Um, I increasingly turning violent. There were roadblocks, actually, a few days ago there, largely because you have two groups that were sharing the same corridors that are now fighting to see who, who ends up with the control of those corridors. Um, in a place like Acapulco, this is also a fight among groups that split. Um, Michoacan, the same situation. You're seeing a realignment of groups. So this is something that, that should be worrying us. Um, there are no easy solutions to this, um, either to lowering violence or limiting the reach of the trafficking organizations in Mexican society. The first three years of the Calderon administration, the current administration in Mexico, we saw a very strong commitment to, to putting law enforcement on the ground and primarily using the military to do this, the most readily available force, 45,000 troops sent all over the country, the, the creation very quickly of a new federal police, almost 29,000 in number today who could be dispatched to, to major areas of violence. It was in many ways a blunt strategy. Um, it was a strategy they didn't necessarily have the intelligence to know where they could strike best, but it was trying to go out and at least cover the territory and make sure that organizations could not operate with impunity. We're at a moment where, where there's an attempt to refine that strategy. And let me point to a few things that are happening in Mexico that I think are interesting and that pretend, you know, potentially down the road could be positive that they're followed through on. I mean, one is the creation of, of a different kind of police, and I don't want to overstate this, I don't want to either understate or overstate anything. And, and you know, the, the, let me give you sort of academic skepticism, right? I mean, I, I think things are actually moving in a positive direction overall. But that said, there's lots of rooms for, for, for things to go wrong along the way. But we have seen the creation of a federal police um, that seems to have some good internal controls, some good accountability controls that has, they've just uh, added 9,000 investigators, CSI teams, essentially, what we know as CSI teams here, um, who have actually been trained jointly by Mexico and the United States. They created for the first time a national criminal database. This is something we take for granted. Anyone watches, you know, anyone who's in, in law enforcement, but anyone who watches Law and Order or you know CSI. You know, I mean, this is sort of one of the, the the basic things you deal with in law enforcement in this country, right? Is being able to know if someone whose fingerprints are at a crime scene in one city committed a crime somewhere else, or if a car used in in a crime here was stolen from somewhere else. None of that existed in Mexico. I mean, I'm not talking about 20 years ago. None of that existed two years ago in Mexico. Um, very basic tools that you need for law enforcement in the middle of a crisis. One of the exciting things, and we were talking about this earlier, one of the exciting things they've done within this, um, they're important things at any rate, is, is actually fingerprinting, and they're still in the process of doing this, but they seem to be getting close, fingerprinting all the federal and state police. A lot of police officers have gone to the other side. 
you know, they increasingly go into organized crime. So making it harder for police officers to cross the line is, is crucial. You know, at least you have the fingerprints, voice recordings, um, and, and the retinal scans so they can more easily identify police officers and, and hopefully make it hard for them to go on to the other side. Um, Police reform is moving much faster at a national level than at a local level, than at a state level in Mexico. But, but there's some movement at the state and local level. Secondly, and I think very important, is, is a shift in the judicial system. Uh, a year ago, there was a, a constitutional amendment passed to change Mexico's closed inquisitorial system, where largely the judge decides based on written evidence submitted, doesn't have to give much reason for his decision or her decision, into an oral, public oral trials, much like the system we have in the United States or in Colombia or Chile or Spain or many other places. Um, the idea is that this will be much more transparent. Um, they also created alternative dispute resolution, which will get a lot of smaller crimes, um, can move them along quickly, and a lot of civil disputes can be moved along much quicker. But in terms of organized crime, extremely important to begin to have a court system that is trustworthy, where people feel that decisions are made for, for an actual reason. And where innocent people um, are also able to defend themselves and, and be let free, where they have due process. Third, we're seeing a, a development of intelligence capability, still way behind what I think the Mexican government would like, but, but the beginnings of development of intelligence capabilities to try and track what's going on with, with the leaders in, uh, of drug trafficking organizations, and including, expanded greatly, though it's still far behind where it should be, um, financial intelligence, trying to track the finances of drug trafficking organizations. And, and finally, uh, beginnings of efforts to root out corruption in, in a more systematic way. Um, we've seen this at the federal level significantly, where the, the federal government has gone after a number of people, including at the, the deputy secretary, undersecretary level, who were found to have ties with organized crime. But we've also begun to see some actions against local police commanders, um, state public security chiefs, um, attorneys general, who, who have links to organized crime. You've got to figure these are groups that have billions of dollars. So in the end, you can always find a public official to buy off. But they're make, trying to create an incentive to... Um, a disincentive to do that. So it's still episodic, but it's happening. In the end, however, Mexico's problem with drugs, which I, I believe is the title of this talk, is, is deeply tied to our problem with drugs. Um, and I want to come back to that and, and underline it and underscore it. I mean, it's impossible to conceive of a solution in Mexico that doesn't involve us in some ways. Um, we have a consumer market for narcotics in the United States that dies up 60 to 80 billion, more or less. Of, of that, about 18 to $38 billion a year go south. To Mexico and then some of it on to Colombia. 18 to 38 billion. I mean, no one knows if this number is true, but this is the number, the official Justice Department number. Um, it, it's certainly somewhere in that range. Um, this is a, an unbelievable amount of money um, that is coming back, and this is primarily driven by U.S. consumers of illegal narcotics, um, some of whom are addicts, um, some of whom are, are kids trying drugs for the first time, who have never thought of the connection to what's going on in Juarez. Um, we could do a lot more in this country, and as we heard from Secretary Clinton yesterday, in, to invest in prevention and treatment. We've moved away from that. We, we had some experience with this in the 1980s. We moved away from it for, for a long period of time. I think that discussion is back on the table. I think we're going to see some efforts over the next couple of years to invest in prevention and treatment again, but certainly worthwhile investments. And probably the best thing we could do to help Mexico, we can do a lot to help them with, with a few resources here and there, sharing intelligence. But if there were one thing we had to pick, reducing the market, reducing the, the the billions of dollars, even if it's slightly, will hit the bottom line of the cartels. It won't get rid of them by any means, but it will certainly hit their bottom line. Secondly, there's a great deal we can do on disrupting finances. Um, we've done this with terrorism. We've actually been fairly 
you know, moderately successful with terrorism, beginning to figure out how organizations move their money, begin to track it in bank accounts, begin to track it in wire transfers, begin to track it in, uh, in real estate and other investments that they make. It, it's somewhat complicated in this case because a lot of money moves back in bulk cash. In fact, the majority of the money is believed to be moved back, literally in small shipments within cars, which is very hard to detect. Um, but there is a lot, it, it's unrealistic to think we'll ever catch a majority of this or even a significant percentage, but we could do a lot more and, and actually we've seen a redirection of federal resources and some state resources as well to begin to see if we can tr follow the money trail um, and work closely with the Mexican government on this. Same thing with, with weapons, um, Mary and I were remembering earlier a an incident where we were with the Attorney General of Mexico, the then Attorney General of Mexico, who, who brought out a giant automatic weapon um, with a group of us and showed us um, the kind of weapons they were confiscating from drug traffickers. Um, there is a large number of, of automatic weapons coming into Mexico bought in gun shows, gun shops in the United States. And so a great deal more that, that can be done, not to limit people's right to arms, but simply to track those who are knowingly selling to organized crime outfits. Um, and finally, intelligence is something that the U.S. government has a great deal of intelligence on, on what goes on in terms of drug trafficking. This is a business on both sides of the border, of course. A great deal more we can do to share intelligence. And unfortunately, we've had some recent successes on this where intelligence has been shared, has been used wisely, and it's creating a bit of a virtuous circle in terms of what we can share with each other. There's always a great deal of caution in how you do this, also for the Mexicans sharing intelligence with us. But, it, but increasingly, I think there's, there's a, there are channels that are developing where people feel more secure sharing information. That's allowed to capture some of the, the leading drug traffickers in the country. Not, not enough yet to make a dent, but perhaps something that, that down the road can be refined and become more effective. And finally, perhaps most importantly, we can help Mexico strengthen rule of law. Now, this is something Mexico has to do itself. But one of the differences you notice, with the Mexican cartels, the same groups that are trafficking drugs in Mexico, operate in the United States. The same groups operate here. They hand off to U.S.-based organizations, mafia groups, gangs, others in the U.S. who distribute on the, the drugs on the ground. But they're operating in the U.S yet you don't see the same kind of killings in the United States. Why? Because they don't want to call attention to themselves on this side of the border. In Mexico, there is a 1% to 2% chance that if you commit a murder, you will be put in jail. That is a very low risk to take if you are a killer for a drug cartel. You know, it's much higher if you do that on this side of the border. You know, the level of, of violence you have to create to call attention is much higher. One of the things that I, I think you see a commitment for Mexican society on and where we can be helpful is developing the, kind of, the same kind of institutional structure in Mexico, the same kind of police who are trustworthy, the same kind of court prosecutions that are effective, that are evidence-based, and the same kind of court system that people can trust that is transparent enough. Now, that is easier said than done, but there are some good things happening in Mexico that certainly can be supported. And the, and the court reforms, while they're largely happening at a state level in Mexico, they're being driven by, by ambitious um, attorneys general and governors in some of the Mexican states. So there's a great deal we can do to, to support that work. Let me just conclude by reemphasizing that we don't really have choice to but to cooperate on this issue. I, I got to reading, I usually don't read the blogs and newspapers. Um, you tend to get sort of the extreme opinions on all sides when you read the blogs and newspapers. But I was reading actually a Dallas Morning News story over the weekend, and, and there was a story on Mexico, and I started to read the blogs below it. And literally everyone said, we need to close the border with Mexico. Um, you know, just let them deal with their problems, the violence is on their side, let's contain it there. Next story I read was in El Universal, a Mexican newspaper. And so I figured, I'll look at the blogs there too, they have a blog section. Exact mirror opposite. They all said the same thing, we should close our border with the United States, it's their drug problem, let them get drugs from somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> we, let's keep the arms out, let's stop the money from flowing down here.
I mean, you know, it, it, I guess in some theoretical world it could make sense. Either side, you know, could make sense. But, but in reality, we're talking about a circular trade between the two countries. We're talking about a trade where where drugs are coming up from Mexico to the United States to American consumers. Um, American consumers are sending money back to Mexico, often unwittingly, often without ever thinking about the cycle here, often because of, of serious addictions. Um, coming back to Mexico, some of that money is being used by the trafficking organization to buy weapons as well. That's coming back into Mexico, fueling the violence, which is then about the drugs coming back into the United States. This is a truly circular trade we have between our two countries. Given that it's a circular trade, the only solution we have in the end is to figure out what we can each do on our side of the border and what we can do together to really face this situation. Um, I think there's significant signs of hope. I think one of the things we heard out of, of the delegation from the U.S. government yesterday was a desire to move into a closer binational strategy. I think some very interesting efforts started under President Bush three years ago, who, who started sort of a, a cycle of cooperation with Mexico, along with President Calderon. We've seen this renewed, I think, under the, the administration of President Obama. I think this is certainly the right idea that we have. We have to see whether the strategy is effective. Certainly do not want to oversell this in any way, because when you deal with a problem of this magnitude and this complexity, there's a lot of room to, to not get it right as you go along. But at least there's the talk, there's the discussion, I think a commitment on both sides, that this has to be dealt with in a binational strategy. And so let me just finish by saying, I mean, on this issue as so many others, we, we really can benefit from strategic cooperation. In economies that are linked so tightly, in societies that are linked so tightly, as we are Mexico and the United States, whether it's on a problem like drug trafficking, which is, is the downside, the dark side of our economies, or, or it is the positive side of the trade between our kinds, of the job creation between our economies, the, the family ties that exist between our two countries. In the end, our, our only strategy is to begin to think how we can cooperate better, what we can do that benefits communities, that makes people more secure, that makes people's livelihood better on both sides of the border. We leave it there. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Uh, traditionally in our program, we take three questions at a time. Now, housekeeping, at, uh, at 1.30, the, uh, we, we formally adjourn. Then we stay here after 1.30 till 2 around the podium over here asking the speaker questions in an informal way. Uh, now, starting the three-question series, we have a number of high school students here with us today, and I'm going, they have sent in some questions, and I'm going to read one question at a time and then take two more from the audience and uh, he'll do the three questions that way. Uh, first question here is from uh, Frederica Clarwitter of Weatherford High School. How can Mexico stabilize its economy so people in its middle class can actually have a good life and don't have to leave the country? And two more questions from the audience. Anyway, uh, right here. You, yes, uh-huh. Well, actually, I don't know that it's as much a, uh, a question as a, as a comment and underscoring some of the, um, the important points you made in terms of the intricate relationship between Texas or the United States and Mexico. And my interest from the University of North Texas is that we continue to encourage student mobility back and forth between the two countries and close partnerships between um, educational institutions because that sense that we need to close the borders, I, I think is the worst um, of the, the many alternatives. So 
um, I guess maybe this is a um, sort of underscoring the importance of the connection and hoping that everybody here in the room will continue to help those high school students as well as our college students continue that mobility back and forth. Oh, now, that doesn't count as a question. <laughs> okay, well, we, we let, please let, let us work together because there are a bunch of questions over here. Let's really ask just questions. Okay, Fred. How do we guarantee the public financing of the Mexican government when 40% of its revenues come from failing offshore oil fields and only 11% of Mexican GDP is collected as taxes. Another question, third question. Yeah, okay. I'm curious to know if you know what the impact of what I would call the kind of the loosening up of marijuana laws in this country might, might have on the drug trade from Mexico, particularly I guess medical marijuana, maybe the possibility that more marijuana is being grown in California, for instance, that increase the demand for Mexican marijuana and, and or not. Hey, wow. Um, uh, let me well, let me actually just uh, stress your point. I mean, I, I think we we are at a um, I, I think encouraging mobility, particularly of the, of the coming generations in between the two countries, is vital. I mean, I I, I think the. The relationship that we have, the intricate relationship, as you called it, between our two countries, is far ahead of our understanding of that relationship. I've been working on a book which I, I tentatively title Intimate Strangers, partially because it sounds like a romance novel and figure people will buy it, um, but, but also because I, I, I mean, it gets at that point, which is that there's a certain intimacy in the relationship. I mean, this is a really intricate relationship that we have with Mexico. At the same time, we're largely strangers, and, and hopefully that is changing with a new generation that's coming up and, and actually has a more personal relationship. Um, with the other country. Um, what can, great question from Federica on stabilizing the economy, and, and I'll, we'll go on to the public finances as well with that. Uh, it's, you know, Mexico's uh, blessing and curse is that it is tied to the U.S. economy. Depending which day you ask, you know, people in Mexico about that, they'll mm -hmm. tell you uh, how they feel about that. Um, clearly, Mexico has done, I would say, much better overall um, over the past few years because it is no longer subject to some of the ups and downs that many developing countries go through because it's more closely tied to the U.S. economy. I think that's been an overall benefit for Mexico. When the United States goes through an economic crisis like we did last year, um, it, it's a large problem for Mexico. Mexico suffers worse than, than, than we do here. And the, the, the old saying in Mexico is, is when uh, Uncle Sam sneezes, Mexico catches a cold. So there is a, uh, a sense that you know, Mexico can either be pulled up by the U.S. Or, or pushed down. That said, most of what Mexico can do, it has to do on its own. You know? and, and this is a question of how do you break down um, some, some of the existing structures, monopoly structures, and we'll talk about one big one, oil, in a second. You know, structures that are there still from the old system, the old one-party system. How can you generate, um, change the education system? Which is another monopoly structure. Um, how can you change the, the education system to give young people real opportunities to learn? How can you invest in, in poor communities to give people opportunities both to go to school but also to be, be productive? Can you create jobs but also can you, you know, in, give people credit so that they can develop their own businesses, they can get their products to market if they're in a rural area? And there's a lot that Mexico could do on this and in which we may be able to be helpful. Um, but but is ultimately has to be done by Mexico, and clearly one of these is um, 
uh, this gentleman was referring to Fred. Is it Fred? Fred was referring to um, Me Mexico has a state-owned oil company, which which really doesn't have the knowledge to go out into deep waters. Mexico is known to its, its existing oil fields are declining in production. Um, it does not have a uh, the technology or the know-how to really get into deep waters. And so one of the debates is how can you begin to to bring in some private investment to make that happen. One of the models which is attractive to me, Mexicans is the Brazilian model, where the, the Brazilian state has kept a majority ownership of their oil company, but they've allowed private investment. And, and in the process, they've actually developed a great deal of know-how. I had a, had a wonderful conversation with someone from Petrobras, the Brazilian company of the day, said, you know, how did you guys do this? This was, you know, first of all, it wasn't as sensitive an issue. Petroleum, when we started doing this, was a small part of the economy. In Mexico, it's a big part of the economy. Um, and, and secondly, once we started doing it and we realized that we were developing our own know-how, you know, and we were becoming there, and Petrobras is actually an international oil company. It's one of the largest oil companies in the world, the Brazilian state-owned company. They learned from the private sector companies how they could do things themselves and have become a major powerhouse. It created a cycle where we wanted to do more of this, and we figured out we could have a, a public-private partnership. I think it's going to take a crisis in Mexico for this to happen. I, I mean, I think you're going to have to see public finances go down more to, put, to push the political debate, but that may not be far off. So um, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. And, and um, loosening marijuana laws. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of people talking about this. I think there's a lot of interest in energy reform. It's politically, it's sort of like Social Security reform in this country. It'll happen the day when we realize that we're really facing a, a major crisis, and people who are on you know, the left and right in this issue in different positions will suddenly say, let's figure out if we can find something we agree on here. Th that's going to have to happen in Mexico, too. But every country has their, their third rail politics. Um, this is Mexico's. The, um, Loosening marijuana laws, you know, I don't think we know enough yet about what's happening. Clearly, U.S. production on marijuana is up. But there are two things we don't know. We don't actually know, we were talking about this earlier, we don't actually know what percentage of the cartel's profits is marijuana. We, we often see the 50, 60 percent figure out there. I, I tend to distrust that figure. Not that I have any better figures, but, but every, everyone we talk to suggests, when you actually talk about specific groups, that cocaine is the real motor of, of, the, of the trafficking organizations, and marijuana is the cash is the cash product, right? It's, it's the liquid product. They can move it in, in mass, in bulk. Um, it's, it's very important because of that, you know, and, and it has a high return rate because they grow it as well. The cartels control the growing. But the cocaine is really the big money maker. Um, you can see lots of possibilities. I mean, one is that, you know, production can just move over to the U.S. side and sort of takes that revenue stream out of the Mexican cartels, which would be a blow to them. Um, you could also see, you know, were there a movement towards legalization in California that could take away some of the, the profits in marijuana, could create more competition, hit their bottom line. Um, but you could also see, you know, criminal organizations are, you know, they're sophisticated businesses. Um, they also find ways to adapt. So I'm, I'm not sure it will change. It, 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 they may move up or down, and it would clearly be better if they had less money over time, one way or another. Um, because demand went down here, they had less control over the, over some of the products. That said, they, they found a way to adapt into other businesses like kidnapping and extortion and, and other things. So I, I don't want to be too optimistic. <laughs> or too pessimistic. Oh, sorry. Uh, our next question from the high school group. Uh, this is from Jacob Brown of Clark High School. Is there any chance that the drug cartels would be involved in other acts of terrorism other than drug violence? Very good question. More of the high school kids here. Okay. Uh, let's have another couple of questions right there. I have a question about uh, Mexican pride and nationalism. 
you mentioned that half of the people coming from Mexico do not have legal documents. Uh, and I wrote down, since the U.S. operates <coughs> on the rule of law, why hasn't the Mexican government been more vocal to its citizens that illegal immigration is counterproductive to the U.S.-Mexican relationship? Very good, very good question. Okay, Larry? Would you uh, comment uh, whether uh, making uh, Spanish available to uh, uh, immigrants to this country from Mexico hurts them or helps them? Uh, there's, uh, there's some feeling that maybe they, they, are, they can get by on Spanish too easily in this country, and to really succeed in this country, you really need to know English. Well, let me start. The great questions from the high school group, by the way. Um, let me start with Jacob's question, which is that the uh, the cartels. Very uh, <laughs> from everyone, but <laughs> you know, I'm impressed with the high school crowd. This is, this is a very sophisticated group over there. Um, the so far we know of no, and, and have this from fairly good sources. We know of no um, involvement of the cartels in terrorist activities, abetting terrorist groups, or any terrorists that have come through the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, that said, uh, obviously, the, the kind of infrastructure that, that organized crime develops can always be used for other kinds of, of organized crime. I mean, everything from falsifying documents to, you know, smuggling routes, things like that. So there's always a fear that something could happen. Um, it doesn't seem to have happened in large part because the, the, the drug trafficking organizations are willing to call attention themselves up to a point, but they know that this would really bring down more attention than they want, and their businesses. You know, you'd have to come to a pretty high price to make it worth their while to bring down the degree of law enforcement that would come down, international law enforcement, if there were to be an incident involving terrorists. This is not to say it can't happen. And, and also because increasingly we're finding that organized crime groups, the drug trafficking organizations, are not always cohesive entities, right? There's lots of people making decisions at different levels. But it's not to say it can't happen. It simply hasn't happened yet, which suggests that they've been very cautious about this, that they haven't wanted to, you know, their, their business is making money off drugs. And a little bit off extortion locally, and you know they are kidnapping here and there. I mean, you know they have a range of of, of enterprises, but um, but they are uh, that sounds terrible. I'm sorry, but they they they, they do get involved in a, a series of of other side products. But but terrorism has been something they've been very aware they want to stay away from, just because of, of the amount of attention and heat that would bring down on, which would under, undermine their other businesses. Um, and hopefully that will continue to be the case, but it's certainly something worth being vigilant on. Um, certainly something that both governments are actually very vigilant on. Great deal, I mean, this is an untold story, but there's actually a great deal after 9-11 of cooperation that happened off the radar screen between Mexico and the U.S. Um, had a conversation with a, with a Mexican official about this, very senior Mexican official the other day, who was in the previous administration, uh, on just a, what level it was, and we've heard bits and pieces from the U.S. side as well. I mean, a lot of things that neither country wanted to get out, but just in terms of making sure that no one could use Mexican territory to get into the United States, they did some very sophisticated things to, to try and, and shut down that possibility. And that cooperation continues. So that's the other control on this. Um, uh, Brian Nationals in Spanish. Well, let me go with Spanish first, which is that, I, I, you know, I, my personal take on this is, and I'm not an expert on education and, and don't pretend to be, but my personal take is that we should all be bilingual. Um, I, I am less enthusiastic <laughs> about biling remedial bilingual programs which are targeted at, at new learners of English and much more enthusiastic about trying to make everyone bilingual, which would be helpful to people coming in, but it would set the bar higher for all of us. 
And I think it's a different kind of program. And there's some schools, schools that have tried to do this have often been very successful, where it's not a question of remedial, you know, you learn Spanish because you only speak Spanish at home, but everyone should be learning Spanish or French or German or Chinese or another language. Um, and we will use your, your native fluency in another language to your benefit, but you've also got to learn English in the process, and we expect you to perform well in both. So again, that's my lay opinion, however, and, and others may, may be more versed in this debate. Pride and nationalism. You know, immigration, migration in general, everywhere in the world, and particularly between the U.S. and Mexico, breeds an enormous amount of hypocrisy on all sides. Um, it is one of those issues that, that, that we actually, you know, I, it, it sort of is an endless amount of, of um, pointing fingers in different directions. I think for people in, in Mexico, it's very convenient sometimes for people in policy circles that people do have an escape valve to come to the United States. So that is a, you know, there is a certain amount of hypocrisy there. But in this country, frankly, we for a long time didn't enforce immigration laws. We expected people to come without documents. Most of them returned home. We had a circular migration for a long time. And it was understood in our immigration system. And it was very publicly talked about. I mean, this, was, this is not a mystery here. It was very publicly talked about the fact that it was okay for Mexicans to come across without documents and go back. We've now tried to change that. But, you know, we should be very sensitive to the fact that Mexicans look at that and say, wait a minute, you know, something changed here. We, we both are, have engaged in a bit of... of uh, selective memory, perhaps, on how we deal on this issue. And, and, and perhaps we need to have an honest conversation between our two countries on and how we can better manage this. Our third uh, high school question is from Courtney Reed of Weatherford High School. What actions could the U.S. take to either to prevent or to handle, if it occurs, violence that will overflow into the United States from the cartels? That's a third high school question now. Uh, two more questions from the audience. There. How would the, uh, the current party in power in Mexico, where it's the next general election, how would the approach of the new government uh, district to the current one? Okay. Uh, there. That's one of those great questions, actually. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, and, and I think the, the official statistics have been 50 to 60 percent. Um, I tend to think it's a little, and again, I'm not basing this on anything other than people who know more about this than me who doubt this, um, who are very serious researchers, who think it actually may be, marijuana may actually be less than that in terms of the profits, that, that it's a lot of the cash flow um, but it is not necessarily the profits. I mean, cocaine takes a longer time to get across. It's much more heavily guarded. It, it, but it, in the end, marijuana is kind of the easy crop that you can move in and out. Um, it, it's hard to tell. And, and again, the 18 to 38 billion, which, which goes to, it's actually the figure for Mexico and Colombia, but much of the money, there, is, there are still Colombian routes that don't go through Mexico, but, but now m most of the routes seem to be going through Mexico and then payment back to the Colombian organizations. Um, so we can assume most of this is probably going through Mexico. Again, this is a, you know, it's the National Drug Intelligence Center's figure. Um, it's probably a good figure to use, but I wouldn't want to, to guarantee you it's the right figure either. I mean, we have a colleague working on actually looking at money laundering issues and how we could do, be more effective at disrupting this. And one of the things he's finding is even trying to get information on how the U.S. government um, disrupts 
uh, money flows and how, mu how much money has been caught in the past year tied to drug trafficking is very hard. There are no sort of official statistics that actually coincide across agencies. Much It's even worse to try and get it from Mexican authorities. Um, so we don't really have good measures, and, and we haven't invested in this. I mean, one, one of the first things with terrorist financing, for example, was done was trying to figure out what's the universe we're talking about, what kind of money is this. We need to actually start at that point right now and actually figure out what is even the universe we're talking about here that's realistic, you know, and, and what's being intercepted and how do we measure that. Um, the uh, another great question actually from Stephanie in the high school group, violence in the U.S. I mean, this is clearly a concern, right? I and mean, we, we haven't seen the kind of violence you would expect. El Paso continues to be one of the safest cities in the U.S. As people in El Paso, which is down in El Paso, will tell you with pride. I mean, it continues to be a very safe city, right? And they always say, I mean, being from Washington, they always say it's a lot safer than Washington D.C. And they're right. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, it, we haven't seen yet the movement of violence across the border that we expect. That doesn't mean it can't happen. Right? And particularly as drug trafficking organizations are, you know, some of the top leaders are picked off if that happens. It started to happen to some of the groups. You increasingly have people who are sort of the, the hired hands, the thugs, the people who are the enforcers moving up into positions of leadership. Who is to say, who are not necessarily strategic. I mean, the traditional leaders in drug trafficking tend to be a bit business folks for, for whom violence is instrumental. Sort of the godfather, right? I mean, you know, this is, we can always remember, we, we've been through this ourselves, right? This is not alien to the United States. You know, where violence is really a means to an end, it's not, it's not an end in itself. There are people for whom it becomes an end, and so you, you could see a situation in which violence happens at a greater rate in the U.S. One of the things we saw last week was, was great cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico to go after one of the gangs that operates on both sides of the border in El Paso and Juarez. In fact, the gang that, that, seems, to have been, that seems to have been implicated in the, the killing of the three people with the consulate in the United States uh, the U.S. consulate are, uh, is a gang that started in El Paso, but they primarily do their acts on the Mexican side of the border. Being able to, to have these kind of partnerships is important, where we can track people as they move back and forth and make sure you know, that we reduce violence on both sides. One of the most extraordinary groups I've met recently, actually, was, if I just throw this in there as an anecdote, but it is a, there's a group in San Diego and Tijuana um, called the Border Liaison Officers Association. It's a group of frontline law enforcement personnel from the U.S. side as far up as Los Angeles, San Diego, Riverside, you know, all Southern California, who meet with their counterparts from Tijuana, Mexicali, Ensenada, Rosarito. Um, once a month, they meet at a, a nondescript restaurant um, they, a few of them get together every month. There are about 200 of them on the list. And they get together and just talk about what they're doing. And, and no one knows you know, who they can trust on each side of the border. So this becomes a way of sort of building trust, beginning to feel people out, beginning to exchange information on small things, and then seeing if the information is used wisely or not, and whether you can trust the person on the other side. And at least according to them, we were able to talk to a number of them, actually, over, a few, over several days. Um, it, it's the kind of creative thing that you can do at the border also that, that builds trust. And they deal with organized crime. They deal with a lot of drug trafficking. They deal with, that, with murders and things like that. But they also deal with a kind of regular crime, cars being stolen, children being taken across the border without parents' permission by another relative. I mean, the kinds of sort of daily crime that affect people's lives where it's very important to have trust. And so there's a lot of mechanisms like that that, that you can do, in, in, particularly in border communities. And the election question, which is a fabulous question. Um, you know, Calderon is clearly, this is his issue, right? This has been for three years, and I, I don't doubt for the next three years, he has staked his presidency on dealing with organized crime in Mexico. My guess is you're going to see less commitment, perhaps different emphasis from whoever is elected next, um, particularly if his party loses, but also whoever is elected. This is not likely to be their personal issue, unless it, at, in three years this is seen as a real win, you know, that something was really accomplished 
Um, there are inroads, violence is down, people feel good about where things are moving in terms, you know, police are a little more trustworthy, courts are a little more trustworthy. If there's a win, then other people will pick this up as an electoral issue. But if not, even, even in the worst case scenario, you know, where you see someone coming in and wanting to, to not pay attention to this issue, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You know, part of what changed is because the Mexican government decided to go after the traffickers and the U.S. decided to, to strengthen controls at the border. But part is just the dynamic of the traffickers themselves. They got big and powerful and have lots of money. You can't look the other way on that. And, and their fights are about their own things. I mean, the Setas and the Gulf Cartel didn't split a few weeks back because anything the government did. They split because they have a fight over territory and then there was a killing that happened between them and it sort of detonated the whole thing. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. I, I don't think anyone who arrives, I mean, there's a lot of talk about will the new government arrive and try and reach an agreement in the old style with, with the drug traffickers. I don't think you can even do that anymore. And so my, my guess is you will see a continuation of current policies. There may be changes in emphases. There may be someone who spends more time on, on investing in state law enforcement. Calderon's very focused on federal, spends more time on courts, spends more time on, on strengthening prosecutions, um, goes after corruption at a local level. I mean, you know, there could be differences in emphases. But my guess is you're going to see some commitment, though it may not be as, as it may not be the number one issue for whoever arrives. It probably won't be the number one issue for whoever arrives. We have time for two more questions. <clears throat> In 1935, uh, Mexico projected foreign investment in oil. That was 85 years ago. What is your view of a change of attitude and the reduction of influence of the labor union in the oil industry? You further mentioned that Brazil benefited from the uh, influx of foreign currency. I mean, of foreign uh, uh, experts. What is your view on that point, particular point? You don't need to repeat that question. You couldn't hear it. Maureen? Do the unions still have as much power in the manufacturing industries in Mexico as they had 10 years ago? Um, yes. <laughs> Well, and no, at the same time, uh, union leaders have influence. Unions don't, which is, which is a hard thing to differentiate. We think of unions, love them, hate them, depending where you stand on this, as being a representation of membership that could be good or bad for the economy, depending where you stand. It, it, to a large extent in Mexico, there is neither union democracy, people do not control their own unions, and, and you, yet unions are incredibly powerful, union leaders are incredibly powerful in terms of, of making decisions. And, and the conversation is going on now. There is actually a, a reform that was just, that President Calderon just submitted that Congress is now working on. I'm not sure it's going to go anywhere, but, but it could, which has the potential to bring together the left and the right on this issue, which is that the left really wants to see democratic elections in unions, wants to see unions controlled by, um, by, by their members and being able to kick out corrupt union bosses who who've largely lived on, on public transfers to survive. And the right, uh, center-right in Mexico, is very interested in seeing greater flexibility in the labor market so that it's more possible to, to downsize when you need to, to increase workforce when you need to. There's greater possibilities of, of hiring. And I think there's at least the possibility you could have a compromise come out. It's been talked about for a few years, so I'm not, I don't want to say this is going to happen now, but, but there is a possibility you could get a bill that's actually palatable to different sides that would reshape the labor movement in a way that's much more democratic but also allows a certain degree of flexibility um, that could be beneficial for productivity in the future. Um, 
on foreign investment in oil, a gentleman asked, um, I, I, I think there is a greater, it remains a very emotional issue. I mean, I think this is an issue that's still, it's like Social Security in this country. I mean, I, I don't want to overstate the metaphor, but it really is, it's such an emotional issue. And, and the nationalization of oil in the 1930s in Mexico was a uh, was really a, a an important moment for for the construction of the Mexican state. I mean, it was the moment the Mexicans sort of took back, you know, just come out of the revolution ten years earlier, really sort of saying we're going to move forward, we're going to control our resources. It probably made a lot of sense at the time to do something like that. Interestingly enough, the grandson of the president who did this, Lázaro Cárdenas, also named Lázaro Cárdenas, was a scholar with us last year at the Wilson Center. Um, stuck his neck out at one point and said, we should really think about, should we have some sort of public-private partnerships? You know, I'm not talking about losing state control, but should we allow some private investment? And, and was immediately attacked from all sides and, and decided this was not an issue to, to, to talk about at any great length. Um, it, it, it's still a very politically difficult issue in Mexico. In, in the same way Social Security is, I mean, it, it arouses such passions, it's hard to have a rational debate. And I think the change will happen the moment that, that it really hits the fiscal finances. You know, the moment that the Congress is trying to balance the budget and realizes that 40% of the budget is based on oil and oil revenues are going down, some sort of creative scheme will be put together. Um, maybe not an ideal one, but at least some, you know, incremental step which then allows people to talk about, can we take another step down the road? Join me in a hand of applause for our speaker. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.